Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Recalibrating the Scales. I'm your host and Chief Executive Resolutionist, Normia Vasquez-Scales, at your disposal. incarceration, recidivism, and its detriment. Welcome back to yet another thought-provoking episode, ladies and gentlemen. Moreover, author Mujahid Akil will be gracing us this evening with living truths by virtue of his riveting internal scope and testimony regarding mass incarceration and its ramifications and implications. As an aside, I wholeheartedly share the sentiments of my beloved mother who often asserts her religious beliefs that we're indeed living, rather, surviving in critical times. The indisputable writing on the wall laboring as the evidence of the scientific truth and scientific certainty engulfs us all amid our respective daily walks and journeys. Droves, I do mean droves, ladies and gentlemen, of predominantly black, Latino, and men of other minority persuasions are conclusively being incarcerated in record numbers. Quote, One of the most damning features of its U.S. criminal justice system is its vast racial inequity. Furthermore, statistics have revealed that black men are imprisoned at five times the rate of whites, according to the Marshall Project. The pipeline to prison scenario has magnified and blossomed to a newfound precedent, yet one of the burning pertinent questions which prevails lies as follows. Is the black or African-American community absorbing and bearing the brunt of the aftermath? Well, brace yourselves, ladies and gentlemen, because Akil is is poised to answer. Yet prior to slicing into the nucleus of the episode, I render you my original prose poem for your aesthetic fancies, synchronized with the topic at hand, entitled, Branded, Sold by the Pound. If we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, then why do I live within the urban decay of this ill-fated domain posing as, bearing the guise of a makeshift plantation? Comprised of brotherless keepers slain, versed in the art of the game of betrayal, whereas the Grim Reaper fulfills prophecies spawned from premonitions of going once, going twice, S-O-U-L-E-D, sold by the pound, to the elevated bidder. Upon the pummeling of the judge's gavel solidifying the sentence in which I quench, I, falsely accused of of distributing stairways to heaven's pearly gates, a malignant, reminiscent vision etched, sketched, ingrained, branded upon my cerebral planes and vectors, amid the clamor of sirens and LED flashes of blue, white, and rouge, inducing shattered rest, a chronically pained chest and feeble, shallow breath, sparked from nightmares ripping me from my hollow slumber. 
until justice procreates with my name upon the encroaching finale in which I yearn. And now, without further ado, I introduce to you author Mujahid Akio. Welcome to the Recalibrating the Scales radio show, Akio. How are you this evening? For having me on. And it's a pleasure, pleasure have thank you for carving the time and the energy and space to join us this evening. Oh no problem. Thank, thank you. you for that uh heartfelt, thoughtful provoking poem also. Yes, yes, yes. I've man- managed to conjure it up right under the wire. <laughs> All right. Well, Akil, mm-hmm. well, Akil, I know you prefer to be called Akil. Can you share with our right. listeners a bit about about you and your field of expertise? Moreover, can you lend your personal testimony or internal scope, as I refer to it, regarding the correctional system? And also, if you could furthermore cite specific pitfalls of the system, rather, what is a day in the life and, and what is a day in the life of an incarcerated individual? I know I threw quite a bit at you all at once. <laughs> no problem. But in, in, in no particular order, if you could answer any of those questions. All right. Well, I'll try my best. Well, um, you know, my, I, I am Uzziah Akil, and uh, when I was 17 years old in 1996, um, I caught a murder case, and, and I spent two years in the Cook County Jail in, uh, in Illinois. Um, after them two years, when I was 19, in 1998, I was convicted of murder and sentenced to 26 years in the IDOC. Um, so I ended up spending 15 years there. I cost some extra time because the way that they had it, they got a thing called old law and a new law. So I was what they call under the old law. So my 26 years was cut in half. So I was actually supposed to do a little bit over 12, like 12 in a few months. Um, but because of, you know, a lot of racism goes on in there, I got into a lot of fights uh, with the administration, you know, mainly uh, racist prison guards. Uh, I ended up catching, you know, ended up doing a few more extra years uh, while I was in there. That's one of the main pitfalls of going to prison is that once you're there, you don't know when you're coming home. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like, you know, you got this mm-hmm. sentence and, okay, well, you're supposed to be home September 1st, such and such a year. You know, that might not happen, you know, because they have a, a lot of rules in place uh, to keep you there. You know, everything from the smallest rule, like not closing your door, you know, all the way up until, you know, punching somebody in the face, you know, can get you extra time, in, you know, in the penitentiary. So uh, during my time, I ended up doing 15 years. I was released in 2011 when I was 32 years old. So from 17 to 32, you know, I, I basically grew up in that place. You know, that was my, uh, I don't know, rites of passage, you might want to call it, uh, from boyhood to manhood. And, uh, you know, the guys there, they taught me well. I did run into a lot of good individuals, you know, a lot of people that, you know, showed me the way and, and taught me well. But, uh, I mean, of course, you know, the, the majority of the individuals, they are pretty much rotten. So mm. that's another pitfall. You know, you go in there, uh, especially at my age, you go in a young uh, young boy, you know, and you're not really knowing which way to go. So you got a lot of different people that want to pull you in this direction or that direction uh, just to have you go down with them, basically. You know, they got the old saying, misery loves company. 
So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of the oldest games in the penitentiary is the guy that's going home, you know, and he's, you know, he got friends or whatever. Maybe somebody don't even like him. You know, they'll do something to increase his time, you know, like plant a knife in his cell or, you know, start a fight with him on purpose so that he gets more time. So, you know, it's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of different politics in prison uh, that you see and you have to grow up with, uh, you know, coming from, you know, the outside world and coming from, you know, being a young a young kid getting in there. It's like the TV show. It's a different world, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's a lot of pitfalls. It's a lot of things that can keep you there. Uh, and it's also a lot of things that can put you there. And, you know, none of this stuff is by happenstance or by coincidence. You know, it's all by design. And they're just locking people up, uh, black people, uh, Latino people, people of color, at an enormous rate. And during my 15 years, you know, I went from being one of the youngest guys, you know, in the joint to seeing, you know, these younger guys coming in, you know what I mean? And, you know, they coming in, you know, 17, 18, but they didn't look the way we looked when I was 17 and 18. You know, they were coming in, they were a little bit more, I don't know if I can use the word sissified, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, they came in, you know, they they didn't play basketball, they didn't lift weights, you know, they wasn't active, you know, they didn't play no sports, they didn't watch sports, you know what I mean? They they came in and they was, you know, they was really a little soft. So um, (laughs) I started, that was one of the changes that I was noticing while I was in there, and I was wondering, you know, what's going on out here in the free world that these guys are coming in there like this? Mm-hmm. So uh, now that I've had a chance to be out here for a few years, and I've been out since 2011, like I said, so almost seven years, um, I've realized, you know, what I believe one of the biggest things is, and it's the drugs. Like, these kids is using drugs so much and so many that uh, they don't even know who they are. You know what I mean? I think that's what the problem is. You know, when I when I was 17, you know, I, I smoked a little weed, you know, and I drank a 40 or something. You know, these 17, 18, 19-year-olds are like, yeah, I smoke weed, pop molly, sip lean, you know, do meth. You know what I'm saying? They just, they just run the gamut of all the drugs, and I think that's one of the biggest things. I'm talking about right now, one of the biggest things that's going on is that everybody's into this uh, – can I say promiscuous drug use? Like nobody's limiting themselves to say, well, I'm just going to, you know, smoke a joint or I'm just going to have a beer. You know, they want to do every drug that's on the table and it's just, it's destroying their minds. It's obliterating them. So that's, uh, that's one of the things that I see now because you can't, you can't function on that stuff. You know, if you, if you pop pills in the morning, sip lean in the afternoon, smoke weed at night, and in the middle of the night, you smoking methamphetamines. I mean, you 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 don't you don't have time to function and you know play basketball, football, organize sports, go to school, read a book, you know. So these they brains is just completely overwhelmed, or I might want to say underwhelmed because they not getting no stimulation except from you know the drugs that they use. So that's uh, that's part of my expertise right there is that you know I was there for 15 years and I watched as the culture changed in prison from, you know, when I was there, you know, prison is pretty rough, you know what I mean? So, you know, you had to do, you know, there's a lot of fighting, there's a lot of aggression, and I just watched it kind of transform into, need I say, like a kinder, gentler, 
you know, prison population. And I'm like, what's wrong with these guys? Like, you know, they they not mad, they not angry, they ain't upset. You know, they just there. And uh, hmm. yeah, that's it. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to go on and on. No, 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 no. I definitely paint a picture for us. Um, in fact, towards the end, I would like you to render some advice to some of the listeners, particularly our, our male youth that may be listening. I definitely implore parents of sons to listen into this episode. If you can touch them, so you touched upon your personal testimony. This is, you know, part of your field of expertise, some of the pitfalls. What would you say is the day in the life, in a nutshell, of an incarcerated individual? Or have you, I know you touched on once upon a time, there was, there was more aggression, more fighting, things of that nature. If you could spell it, uh, a picture, an illustration for, again, our young listeners, particularly our young male listeners that may be listening in. Oh, uh, yeah, no problem. Uh, you know, I spent quite a few days in there, so <laughs> I remember it vividly. Uh, basically, I mean, it really, it really depends on where you're at. Let me just say that first. Because every, peniten- every penitentiary is different. You know, like every plantation is different. So um, I paint it with a wide brush, and I give you the worst places that I've been, and then I tell you about some of the not as worse. I can't say good or better, but some places were worse than the others. So uh, I was in one place, and it was called Menard. Back, uh, back home, we called it the pit, you know, in, uh, in the joint. One of the oldest penitentiaries in Illinois, I think, is only second to Stateville. I think Stateville or Joliet. They shut Joliet down. So it was Stateville, and then you had Menard. So Menard was an old, old penitentiary with the old bars and everything. You know, they rolled the doors. So a, a typical day in the life uh, in Menard was lockdown. So... Uh, depending on the person you were, I'll give you, like, my type of day. Um, I would get up early because the guards would come through, you know, they come do their they cell check at 7 o'clock, you know, to check everybody, make sure everybody there. But, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times people will be asleep. Well, these guards, like I said, these are racist, hate-filled, just vindictive, malicious people. So when they saw that you were sleeping, they would do things like they would come in your cell, they take your stuff, you know, come snatch the blanket off you. You know, it's a lot of different things that they would do. And particularly in Menard, um, they had what they called a catwalk. So the catwalk is where it separates the, the, the prisoners, like the cells, from the gunman. So the catwalk, that's where the gunman would be. You know, he'd be up there with his mini 14 or his shotgun or whatever he was up there with. So as the as the officers are going through harassing the people in the cells, the gunman is over his shoulder with his rifle. So, you know, the officers come in your cell and, you know, snatch the blanket off of you, you know, and wake you up, and you jump up out the bed aggressively, you go get shot down. So it was all a game, you know what I mean? It was a setup. Um, but anyway, so I get up early. So I get up early about 6.30, so I want to be up before they get there. I get up, put my shoes on you know, clean my cell up, make sure that I, I didn't give them a reason to come in my cell or say anything. And generally, uh, these guys are cowards uh, for the most part. So if they seen that you were up, ready, shoes on, in your cell, they didn't want to come in the cell. You see what I mean? Because they were cowards. They wanted to catch you sleeping. They wanted to come mm-hmm. in there and arouse you 
you know, while you were unawake. So I get up about 6.30, start doing my thing, I work out. Uh, one of my routines was I would work out uh, for hours because we were in constant lockdown because it was a maximum penitentiary. So the only time you would leave your cell would be to go to a child, you know, to go eat, and you get maybe 30 minutes to go eat. So you leave, you leave to go eat, and then you get a shower. And you get a shower every day. You got a shower maybe twice a week, two or three times a week. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. Yep. Let's wow. just say Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you got to go to the shower. And the shower was a, a huge room, uh, kind of like reminiscent of, if you remember high school, uh, locker room, stuff like that. So it was a it was a huge room and in Menard I think the shower held maybe what sixteen people twelve something like that uh, twelve to sixteen people so you go down there in the shower and you get about thirty minutes in the shower maybe ten fifteen depends on how the officers feel because when they say shower time up you know they cut the water off on you so if you you know you full of soap and you didn't soaked up and everything and they say showers up they cut the water off you know what I mean what you supposed to do. So uh, it was it was in your best interest to get your shower out the way, you know, get the stuff on, get ready to come back up. So other than showers, you know, three times a week and going to eat twice a day, uh, you didn't leave yourself. You we would get recreation, you know, they call it yard. You might get that. I think we got yard once or twice a week. I think it was yeah, once or twice. It wasn't more than that. I know that. But majority of the time we was on lockdown, so we didn't leave ourselves anyway. So. Uh, they called it 23 and 1, and with good reason, because you get that little 30 minutes to go eat, and you might get yard, you know, recreation, and you might get a shower. So the majority of your day, 23 hours, you was in your cell. And I spent the majority of my time working out, you know, reading, playing chess. I didn't watch TV too much because I, I started, I began to hate TV. It just, uh, mm. it wasn't appealing. So I spent most of my time, you know, trying to, prepare myself for freedom. So I wanted okay. to stay healthy because the food, they, they, they feed you poison. You know, if I can say that, uh, they feed you poison, the stuff that's called soy, and it was messing people up. People was walking around with colostomy bags and, you know, vomiting, hair falling out, you know, men growing breasts. Uh, it was really messing people up in there, this soy stuff that they started giving us. So the food was poison, so you had to make sure that you stay healthy because the health care and the penitentiary, they work hand in hand. So they know they knew that they was poisoning people, and then you go to the health care and say, man, I don't know what's wrong with me. You know, my stomach is, you know, feel like it's got razor blades in it, and every time I fart, it smells like a, a car burning rubber. You know, and they tell you, well, go back to your cell, drink some water. So uh, they was in, everybody was in cahoots against the prisoners. Like, you had no voice. You had no help. You just there. And that's probably, uh, well, that's not, not probably. That's the worst place that I would be in Menard was just hell. And I see why they call it the pit. I see why they call wow. it Menard, the pit. But a day in the life, you can pretty much expect to sit in your cell. If you got a TV, you can sit there and watch TV all day, you know, if you like. Otherwise, I would suggest you find something more constructive to do in your six by nine. Well, I will be certain 
to have my son listen in on, on this episode. I, I'm one of the parents <laughs> of sons, as you well know. <laughs> Good. Because he Good. definitely, yeah. definitely needs to hear this. So um, a lot of a lot of people do because they don't they don't know what really happens in there. You watch TV, and you know mm-hmm. uh, I've watched this show called Oz. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Um, I have. It's like a you, you have. Yes. Uh huh. Okay, it's like a jail show and everything, but you know it's just comical watching some of these shows because they showing you they showing you these pictures and they're not accurate. You know. They showing you basically they showing you like the action, so you know they showing you the riots and the fights and you know the the rapes and you know all this other stuff. But I'm gonna tell you the truth. The main part about prison, the majority of your time in prison is boredom. That's what prison mm-hmm. is. It's not always exciting. You know I hate to you know burst anybody bubble. It's not a riot every day. It's not a fight every day. It's most of the time is boredom and you sitting there trying to figure out what to do with yourself. That's what wow. prison is. That is an ultimate punishment <laughs> for people that it don't is. like confinement. Let, well, let me, let me yeah. ask you, because I know time is moving on us, and I definitely, definitely, I appreciate you giving us that vivid illustration. I can, I'm definitely there. I was literally there with you as you were describing. But I wanted to address these other questions that I had, one of which is, how does the pipeline to prison scenario pertain to mass incarceration in America in a nutshell? And what are the ramifications posed or inflicted upon our youth? Because we know there's a correlation. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, of course. Uh, well, right now what we got going on or what's uh, been more publicized lately is the school to prison pipeline. Uh, everything is a two prison pipeline, you know, so mm-hmm. it's not just school. But school is where it starts. That's where they want to get you at. And they start conditioning you to be in prison. You know, if you think about the school system, you go to school and what do you do? You sit down all day and you listen to, you know, your professor give these lectures right on the board. But you're basically in a, you know, in in a place where you don't have any freedom. You know, you can't move around. You got to ask to go to the bathroom. You know, you got to ask to do this. You got to ask. You got to ask to get out of your seat. Can I use a pencil sharpener? You know, so <clears throat> they condition you for jail. And even now, um, the schools are really big on these uh, uniforms. You know, which of course you know in prison you wear a uniform. You wear the, uh, in Illinois. You know, we wear the blues. So mm-hmm. uh, they can, it, everything is conditioned. You know, these the, the teachers and stuff. They got these rules and they tell you to do this or to do that, and it's zero tolerance for this, zero tolerance for that, and then you get suspended and everything else. So they're they getting you ready. They're preparing you to go sit in the chow hall. You go sit in the cafeteria and you eat. You got to eat fast. I got a daughter that's in fifth grade, and she tells me, oh, yeah, we went to the cafeteria for lunch, and we only had seven minutes to eat, and I had to hurry up and eat. My stomach hurt, you know, because I had to stuff the food in my mouth, you know, and I'm like, no, see, this is – this is it's jail. It's the same conditioning and quiet as kept. It's the same food. A lot of the a lot of the meals that you get in there is the same meals you go see on your child's uh, menu. You know, cafeteria lunch menu. It's the same food you go see in the hospital menu. Same food you go see in the insane asylum menu. It's the same food you go see in the military menu. 
It's all they give you. They're giving you all the same stuff because they're preparing you for it. Everything is in preparation for it, and you already know that they start building prisons for our black males. You know, off the third grade statistics. You know, they look at how many black children, black men, black boys. I mean, are in third grade, and they start building penitentiaries according to that. Because they estimating it, you know what I'm saying? It's a gamble. It's like the stock market. They gamble and they say, well, we got one million black third graders right now, so we're going to need X amount of prisons in 15 years. You know, when these kids are, you know, 20 years old, we're going to need all of these prisons for, because we we guessing that out of that million, we go get, you know, 600,000 of them, you know, depending on where you're at. You know, I got some statistics pulled up. You know, where it's talking about, like you said, the five-to-one five ratio. Uh, in some places, the, the black prison population is 72% of the whole of the, of the entire prison population. It's only 100. Are you telling me 72% of that 100% is black prisoners? That's not an accident, you know. So they're preparing us every way. The TV pro shows that you watch, it's called TV programming. For a reason, because they program you to get you ready for something. What they getting you ready for? You know, they getting you ready to be set, sat down, so that you can listen and pay attention and do as you told and be a and be a good boy. You know, be a good Negro, as they say. <laughs> so uh, that's that's one of the things about the pipeline that's going on out here. Just one of many. And uh, this may definitely warrant a multi-part episode as a. But you've 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 answered the question. Um, pipeline of prison is null and void. The ramifications posed upon our youth. You've actually gone ahead and basically alluded to the fact that yes, the African American community is directly impacted. Uh, there's so you've answered that question. So we are absorbing, from what I'm hearing, the brunt of the aftermath of. This this issue about mass mass incarceration and sorry to me incarceration. So with that, I know we only have a couple minutes remaining. How can a healthy equilibrium be attained between say, well in this scenario, I was going to say within the judicial and correctional institutions and facilities and mainstream society. Look, what would be your recipe? Got about two minutes remaining, and what advice would you have for our renders coupled with? how they can follow you or contact you. Okay. Uh, Well, the only thing that I can say about as far as connecting society and judicial system, it can't be done, not with black folks, because this system was designed against us. So there's, there's no making that up. There's no befriending that. You know, that's just like they got the thing going on overseas with the, what's the name, the North Korea, whatever like that. There's no getting across that barrier because the line in the sand has been drawn. The police, the judicial system, the, the judges, the probation officers, everybody that's involved, they're not for black people, you know, directly or indirectly. They might not mean that, but if you're a part of this system, that means that you're against black people because this system is designed against the black man in America. Uh, so there is no, you can't fix that. There's no meeting of the minds. There's no getting together, uh, no sit-downs. Uh, one thing that I would encourage every every parent, every black child to do is to pick up a trade. I say 
you know, they want to send you education this and education that and go to college, da, da, da. Learn your trade so that you can work for yourself. Learn to be able to do something where you don't have to be employed by an employer and have a job and wait on a paycheck. If you can fix a car, if you can fix a washing machine, if you can build a washing machine, if you can build a computer, these are things that you can do for yourself. So we have to get our economics together. I'm not going to say first, but that's one of the things that we have to work on if we have any plans of being a, a great group of people in this country anyway. Uh, I am Mujahideh Kiel. You can reach me at 312-586-0347. My email is breaking the chains. That's B-R-E-A-K-I-N-D-A-C-H-A-I-N-Z at yahoo.com. My debut novel is uh, in stores right now. Well, it's on the Internet. Uh, You can go to Amazon and purchase Street Certified. Um, I think it's $13.99 on Amazon right now, or you can contact me. Like get you your autographed copy, you know, for a few dollars cheaper than what they're doing for you on Amazon. But I also want to say thank you uh, to the guests for having me on here. Thank you for the listeners, and I hope that maybe I, you know, was able to say something that maybe just sparked somebody or touched the nerve out there to keep, you know, keep somebody from ending up in the places that I've been. And indeed, you have. Hold on one moment. Stand by, please. I'd like to render the utmost gratitude and appreciation to Mujahe Dakil for carving out the time, space, and energy with us this evening. Moreover, I render accolades to my behind-the-scenes team, Bradley, as always, coupled with all of you magnifying listeners speckling the globe. Remember, this radio platform and movement rests upon your very broad shoulders, and I implore your continued listenership. So please don't hesitate to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Recalibrating TS. That's Recalibrating T Tango S Sierra, an abbreviation for Recalibrating the Scale. Until the next episode, this is Normia Vasquez Scale signing off. Mm-hmm.